Today in the garage, we have all the guests of season three talking about their favorite criminal law quotes and lingo, their biggest pet peeves, and the cases that they believe have aged the best. I also asked them a bonus question just for fun. Whether you're riding a Ducati, picking your base, or prepping for this podcast, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Rebecca McCarthy, tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why. Okay, my quote is, criminal defense attorneys deal with a lot of horse shit. I think the thing that keeps us going, or at least the thing that's kept me going, is knowing that with all that shit, sooner or later, you're going to find a pony. And that's a quote from a longtime criminal defense lawyer in Louisiana named Sam Dalton. There was an interview with him in the Washington Post after he passed away, and I found the entire article was awesome, but I really liked that quote in particular. This comes on the heels of the JJ episode of the <laughs> <Law Garage Yeah. laughs> podcast. Well, I mean, the thing that he does say is, so what are the ponies? You know, discovering wrongful convictions, freeing an innocent person from death row. Those are all important, yes, but those are rare. There are smaller, more attainable ponies. Getting evidence suppressed because you convinced a judge that a cop broke the rules. Getting a conviction overturned after you've shown that a prosecutor withheld evidence. Even in cases where charges are relatively minor, there's a great satisfaction in knowing that you forced the state to play by the rules that you successfully held a powerful person to account. Lindsay, do you have a quote? Yeah, mine's uh, forget the wind up and make the pitch. Justice, Justice John Ilask and um, Rebecca, I mean, earlier in the episode, she had talked about him um, providing advice in the context of the Supreme Court Advocacy Institute. And there's no better person to do that, I don't think, than him. That I think everyone probably had to read his article um, by that name when they were in law school. And if your listeners haven't read that article, I, I certainly recommend that they do just because whether, I mean, it, it's focused on written advocacy, but I think the principle applies much more broadly. So whether you're speaking, whether you're writing an article, um, just, just get to the point, get to it quickly and let the details follow. And I think that's really helpful advocacy advice. Rebecca McConkie, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? So I've got a guy is mine, which is the start of every conversation between criminal defense lawyers when they're looking for another lawyer's input or advice. I got this guy. I got a guy. It's always I got a guy. It's always I got a guy. He's charged with. (laughs) <laughs> exactly you know, uh, yeah it's always the start of a good discussion that's a good one actually no one's no one's come up with that yet Lindsay, same question lingo i like when defense lawyers use short forms for things that in other contexts mean something very different so there was a tweet going around on twitter a few weeks ago where someone was celebrating something like uh, like they had just received a bunch of cp and <laughs> oh and, no <laughs> <laughs> and i just thought to myself wow um you know in our business that means something very different and i don't think you'd be quite so excited <laughs> and and to be honest with you cp is 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 
something that defense lawyers say in mixed company to keep it clean, right? Right. Because yeah. otherwise it doesn't follow, I got a guy and he's charged no. with CP. It never follows that way, right? No. It usually starts with the word kitty. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Pet peeve. Rebecca McConkie. Okay. Uh, I hold think on, my hold pet on, hold peeve. On, hold on, hold on. Let me read the question. Sure. Do it again. Rebecca McConkie. What is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? The stark disparity between how the criminal law actually operates and how politicians and lay people appear to believe that the criminal law operates. And in particular, watching politicians of all stripes use fact-specific decisions they disagree with to justify rolling back hard-won individual rights. That's a big pet peeve of mine. That's a huge pet peeve, I think, of everybody in the profession. That's a good answer. Lindsay, what's your biggest pet peeve in criminal law? Just how long everything takes. It drives me nuts. It's it's so hard telling clients when they first come in that their case is probably going to take two to three years to get through the system. It's really shocking, I think, to the average person, especially when cases in the U.S. are so heavily televised and you see people reaching their trial you know, within a year. And that's what people think justice looks like in Canada as well. And it's just not the case. And it makes me crazy. That That is a very, very mm-hmm. serious pet peeve too, because it's the type of thing that really uh, hurts and impacts our clients' lives. The hanging, a charge is hanging over your head for a long period of time is not under- Not just our clients, right? right. Like it, it's it's not good for society. It's not good for anyone. Yeah, it's hard to talk about accountability when it's going to come three years down the road. Yeah. Rebecca McConkie, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? This is not necessarily going to be the best possible answer, but I think it's one of the one case that I think is what stood the, the test of time, at least to date. Uh, and that's the handy decision from the Supreme Court of Canada talking about why propensity reasoning is prohibited and why uh, limiting the circumstances in which, you know, off indictment allegations can be brought into court. Propensity reasoning is something that is so human. It is so intrinsic to how human beings operate. Like it's the whole idea behind where there's smoke, there's fire. And that is just completely incompatible with the requirements for of evidence and the the way that we should be convicting people uh, so i think the reasoning in handy is understandable and persuasive and so far has withstood the test of time lindsay board same question what case uh do you go to for that my Answer might be really boring, but uh, one of Justice Doherty's early decisions, uh, the Court of Appeal in Morrissey. So the case just defines the test for a misapprehension of evidence. I love that it's just, it's always the same. It's been, it's withstood the test of time. Um, It's very clear. It's very easy to apply. It's not like, especially in sexual offense cases, there's these areas of law, like like with respect to prior consistent statements, motive to fabricate. It's just 
like every year there's a handful of cases that come out that I feel like just make the issue more confusing. And so we know what the test is for a misapprehension of evidence. It's easy to apply. It applies in various different cases and it's easy to understand. So. Yeah. And also it's, it's a case that contains good explanations on the different types of errors that might justify appellate intervention. So whenever I'm kind of speaking to junior counsel who want to get into appeals and want to know the different types of issues to do issue spotting for determining what, you know, the viability of an appeal, I say, look at Morrissey and it'll help you understand what's an error of law. What's an error of fact, what is a misapprehension? What is, uh, you know, uh, an unreasonable verdict? It's it's really a very handy one-stop shop. So that's a, I think that's a good answer, Lindsay. <laughs> Thank you. I often forget as well that they describe um, a misapprehension of the evidence if it's made out as a miscarriage of justice. Every mm-hmm. time I go back and look at that case when I'm working up an appeal, I am always reminded that that's very helpful language to include in your factum. So there you have it. Um, so because I'm not bound by 278 here, I have two, I have a surprise question. (gasps) What's on your playlist going into court or your intro music going into court? Okay. I, this is from my, uh, uh, one, a recent playlist. I have, uh, basically songs that are, are telling me to, to shake off any bad vibes and show them who's boss. So I do have shake it out by Florence and the machine. I've got dancing on my own by Robin. I've got bulletproof by LaRue. I've got platinum by Miranda Lambert. So basically women singing loud and proud. And that's my general vibe. All good answers. Lindsay. For whatever reason, um, very aggressive rap music really pumps me up court so that's my pre you seem like the type you seem like the yeah type. i know yeah you look at me and that's exactly what you think i know um so really anything by dmx uh rough riders anthem is a favorite hustling rick ross annie up buster rhymes uh bring them out ti all these things make me very excited to cross-examine a witness i get that see you Pashang. Tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why? Well, um, I recently started rewatching The Wire. Um, and uh, you and I, Marco, uh, we were having a discussion at the, the chambers. We discussed anecdotally how it's a, you know, a great primer. The, the Wire show itself is such a great primer for any justice system participant to familiarize themselves with the criminal justice system or quote unquote the game for that matter. Um, And a quote that stands out, um, and I quote here, I got the shotgun, you got the briefcase. It's all in the game, though, right? Uh, That's Omar Little when he's in court giving testimony as a witness to a murder. The lawyer, Maurice Levy, uh, who I think is like your prototypical lawyer uh, in any TV show, he tries to discredit Omar by, by listing his many crimes, most of which involve, you know, violence or possession of weapons and whatnot. And the lawyer berates Omar for robbing drug dealers, accusing them of being, you know, parasites who leech us off the culture of drugs. And Omar calls uh, the lawyer out saying, just like you, man, <laughs> explain that Levy's briefcase is just as much of a part of the narco economy as Omar's shotgun. So emphasizing that each has a part to play in the drug trade. He, you know, Omar ends this quote by, by noting it's all in the game, though, right? So I think that was sort of something that stands 
uh, quite uh, significant. One of many great uh, quotes and scenes from that series, Sia uh, knows that uh, I'm a TV junkie. Yeah. And, um, you know, The Wire, as far as I'm concerned, for anybody listening, is a must-watch for young lawyers. I've said it before on the Law Garage podcast. And I, if you have nothing to do and you want to rewatch it, I encourage a rewatch. But Absolutely. it's an important show because it really paints a nice uh, picture of, especially the policing aspect of it and how they conduct their investigations and, you know, and it informs you on on the mindset of the police uh, during a very tumultuous time in Baltimore uh, in the early 2000s. Sia Pashang, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? Okay, so I quote, when I'm on road, end quote. Um, <laughs> that's usually uh, a reference to being outside uh, or out of custody that you hear from clients. You know, they refer to the outside as road and it's interesting to me. It's quite uh, baffling, perhaps, to some others who are not in this in this game, if I could call it that. Uh, why they say "road" and not just you know another term? But I found that fascinating, and it's qu- quite consistent throughout. Um, you know, client after client will refer to it as "road." So I, I appreciate that one. I don't. I, I never understood the origin of that. Uh, <laughs> I never understood the origin. It reminds me of as though they're like cowboys. <laughs> you know, being released from custody, but I never really understood the origin of that. And I've, I've Googled it. Um, you know, urban dictionary basically con- attaches it to drug dealing, which means, you know, when I'm on road, it means I'm, when I'm dealing drugs I'm on the streets, but it's a common phrase used by people in custody when, from when they're in or out, whether it's drugs or, or right. other, uh, offenses. Sia Pasheng, what is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? Uh, I hope this isn't too controversial, but I think oftentimes when the opposing side, I'll just call it that, uh, presents themselves as too nice in their demeanor uh, for a trial or a bail, and it's almost to the point of being condescending or pretentious, and I think it's it's sort of insincere and it brings out that insincerity um, and it's sort of out of touch with reality that our clients and other perhaps individuals are faced with, uh, you know, often life altering circumstances and to have someone that's overly nice and sweet seeming in court is a little bit off putting to me. I find that uh, that's an interesting, it's because we don't have that benefit necessarily of, I mean, we're polite and courteous and professional, but I understand what you're saying, like this overly taking the situation, uh, it makes it feel like the situation is not as serious for the crown than it is for us. Um, We have to then, you know, it adds a little animosity in the client sometimes think, well, this person's coming to work every day, happy to be here. And meanwhile, I'm miserable being here because it's going to change my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and, and in part, I shouldn't always, you know, and, and I make a joke, but the crown comes in at, you know, on a work day, our clients are sitting in custody, they are not having a good day. So when a crown says, Mr. or Mrs. So and so, how's your day going? That's a little bit, you know, of a question that may 
not get the answer that they expect. Um, and, and it's sort of, I'm geared, even when I talk to clients, mostly the, those who are in custody, how's your day going? I often hesitate um, not to ask about their day because it's probably not going that well. And, um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, we're all kind and, and, and um, we are all colleagues. So you do want to have that relationship with the Crown where it's collegial, but not overdo it. And I think there's a balance here and sometimes we see it... Uh, tipped a certain way from the crown. I don't like anything that's occurring in terms of friendliness with my, with the crown attorney in front of the client. Sure. I don't think that the client should have to witness, um, you know, friendliness or casual discussions or anything to that effect. Um, even though, even if you are friends, do you take, when you're in the courtroom, you're not on the same side and you're fighting for this person's rights. And I think that we have to maintain a certain level of decorum for our client's benefits. The other thing I I know I learned early on in my career is I never ask a client who's in custody, how are you? How's your day going? I ask, is there anything that you need from me while in custody? Is there any issue that has arisen? I ask, I, I start from the presumption that they're not in a good spot and if there's anything I can do for I th- them. I think that's the way to do it. Sia Pashang, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? What cases age the best? Uh, I would say, you know, talking about the uh, the area of pre-sentence custody or pre-trial custody, R.V. Summers, uh, that uh, it is applicable to many of our clients who we have to count account for, you know, time in custody uh, for sentencing purposes. And then, of course, we have cases of like R.V. Duncan that uh, evaluate, um, you know, conditions, pre-trial conditions in the jails particularly relevant uh, in the time of COVID-19, where we, ha- we have an obligation to, to advocate for that time uh, in really terrible conditions uh, in, in custody and unsafe conditions. So I think R.V. Summers and sort of how that's uh, evolved to other cases that account for our client's time in custody uh, is significant to me. We have a bonus question that's not on the questionnaire. I see. Sia Pasheng, what is on your current criminal law playlist? Okay, so uh, I have, well, I'll tell you my three favorite albums. And uh, uh, I think uh, Lauren Hill's Miseducation is probably number one. And I constantly put that on repeat on my, uh, on my, in my car uh, stereo. Uh, there has to be a Tupac in there, All Eyes on Me. Uh, for sure. And then third, it's either between Michael Jackson's Thriller or um, Disney's Lion King soundtrack. I'm a big Elton John fan. And I'm a big Simba fan. So I think that's what does it for me. <laughs> All right. That's great. We got it. I think we got everything, right? Monty McGregor. Tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why. A uh, quote that uh, obviously it's got to be, here goes nothing with the right music in the background as Lando Calrissian is in the Millennium Falcon leading the attack on the Death Star. Because, and why is it important to me? Because a lot of times in this job, that's what it feels like you're holding on to is virtually nothing. 
And I find it funny with my friends that are crowns because they always think that they're the good guys from Star Wars. And it's like, no, you're the Empire. And we are the rebels. They always mix that up. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. We're Han Solo and Lando Calrissian. So I always think of that. It's like, all right, here goes nothing. Roiland, same question. No, no, that's that's actually pretty good, Monty, I have to say. I mean, for me, I, I think that in terms of quote, I, it, it sort of goes back to what I said about how important collegiality is and, and the fact that you have so many people that are great resources for you. And uh, it's a quote from Maya Angelou. Um, uh, you'll, people will, will, might forget what you've said, and this is just sort of a summary of it. They might forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And I think it's important as we continue in our practice to just make sure that we're good to each other. It's a tough business that we're in. Uh, and you know, it's having people like the two of you within the business that have made it that much easier for me to be able to navigate it. And I know that, you know, that's something that we can all pass on to each other. Monty McGregor, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? There's one that is uh, like, there are lots of words that are annoying that don't make sense. But the one that I love the most has got to be goof, goof, because if you're, if you know the meaning, then you know that if you see somebody on the street and they're swearing at somebody or there looks like there's going to be an altercation and they're getting back and then one guy goes, don't be a goof. And then you go, Oh no, he's been inside. <laughs> so, you know, the person using the word knows that it means what it means if you're in jail. And that's why that's my favorite criminal law word. And it's still used today. It is. It's the most, it's one of the most uh, offensive words for yeah. inside these institutions. Yeah. You can swear at a guy in jail. You can call his mother names. But if you drop the goof word, then something's going to happen. I heard once, <laughs> it, it just expounded in a case that we did. Somebody was called a rat goof. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Geez. And that was the, the double. That means that they've got a, <laughs> they've got a hit out on them as well. Yeah. <laughs> Roiland, same question. Uh, you know what? I, I, was, I was struggling, even though I know all this lingo. But you know what? I, I was, as I was saying before we started, I think it's just the idea of all these sections of the criminal code that, you know, as I think either you or, uh, or Monty said, they just become verbs, right? So they 524'd somebody, for example, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and I didn't realize it until, you know, I have a, a paralegal that's starting out doing criminal law. Who's very, she's great, right? She's absolutely amazing, really with it. And I would just drop these various sections of the code and not realize that I just use it in everyday language now as if it means something outside of yeah. criminal law, right? So. Yeah. I, we we speak in a way that uh, some people don't even really know what the hell we're talking about, including our own clients. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Monty McGregor, what is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law? Honestly, it's I'm such a terrible business person that it bothers me that. Uh, it bothers me how bad I am at it. That's what bothers me the most. I mean, and if you take that out, if we're not being personal, the things that bug me now is I think about when I started and I used to put together like a 15 case case book. And now I, when I go to court, I'm just like my favorite thing. My our associate makes fun of me. Cause I'm like, your honor, you know, the law. And then that's my, that's my extent of the going over the law. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm flippant about it, but I'm like, oh, come on, Your Honor, you know this. Like, it's very much like, let's get to the point. The wave the magic wand yeah, over yeah. the casebook. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's funny. I was doing a first degree murder bail this week and the Crown gives me a case. I'm like, 
I know that case. I did the appeal at the Court of Appeal. This is what it meant. And then, uh, and then I like doing this with a judge, too. I like giving them my own case. I'm like, and I know this case uh, very well, Your Honor, because, of course, I did it. And uh, so that's my new... So my pet peeve is when you get, like, the... Uh, I guess maybe that's it. You get the Crown's Book of Authorities where they're like, we're doing sentencing on a manslaughter. And it's like, why do you have all these second degree murder cases in here? What's this for? You know, that doesn't make any sense. And it's just like, come on, Your Honor, you know the law. Well, you know what's funny is that when, you know, sometimes you hear judges speak at these conferences or whatever, and they're like, listen, don't just give us the case book if you're not going to refer to it and expect us to just wave a magic wand over it and understand everything. That's true. I can understand that point. But how many times have we passed the case book Especially in Superior Court, and they say, I, I, I know all these cases. This. <laughs> do I even have to look at this? Exactly. So it's like, exactly. do we need to do this work or exactly. not? Exactly. That bail right. hearing I did this week, I actually said the associate had put together the, the cases for this first-degree murder bail. And the first thing I said to Justice Tau was, now, Your Honor, obviously you looked at my uh, book of authorities. Those last four cases, I'm not going to refer to at all because they're not applicable. And I'm sorry, I didn't put it together myself. <laughs> and he laughed. He said, that's good. I know the other cases, too. <laughs> uh, Roylan, what's your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law? I mean, I was thinking sort of two things, but one I think is just the arbitrariness of the process because I think it's hard for us to explain to clients sometimes that you can go into a case and run it in front of one jurist and have a result and run it in front of another jurist and potentially have a completely different result. And that's tough. Like, it's really tough to just think, like, you know what? I've got a case. I know my case. I know what I need to do in my case. Now, cross my fingers. <laughs> right? That's, a good, that's such a good point because yeah. I always think back when I first started. I remember Mike Edelson's asking me, like, who's the judge? I'm like, why does that matter? Yeah. And now that's the first question. Like, there could, oh, be, a, there could right? be a whole law school course on who's the judge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who's the judge? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. how do I make this work in my favor? Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's so hard. I mean, it's very hard to explain that to a client and then still sort of justify your existence within the criminal justice system, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, no, I, I swear the, the system is great. Uh, who's our judge? Uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, and the other pet peeve as I thought about it, it's sort of related to client because client management is so important. It's just... Trying to explain to a client that evidence is also somebody saying something. Like one of my big pet peeves is when a client's like, they don't even have any evidence. I'm like, well, somebody said something. That is evidence. <laughs> right? And, you know, so that's one of my pet peeves. I'm like, all right. Here we go. Time to have this conversation again. Yeah. Oh, right. so they, they're just going to arrest me on their word? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when are they going to withdraw the charges? Oh, yeah. Just, you know what they're going to do that. You know what I hate the most? What's that? Tell us. <laughs> is when they're saying, they don't even have a video. I'm like, you're lucky they don't have a video. I've spent hours yeah. staring at yeah. videos uh, of my client yeah. coming. I pray yeah. for cases when they don't have a video. I know. And then you have the one case where it's like, don't worry. I didn't do anything when I was inside the place. And it's the only place that doesn't have a video. And you're like, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Come on. No, yeah. I love that, Marco. Oh, yeah. And of course, there's the... Um, and I saw that somebody, one of our colleagues, had posted on Instagram on her feed about, um, you know, not speaking to the police. And there's nothing worse than waking up at 2 a.m., because you just happen to be up and you see the call, you take the call, you talk to them for 45 minutes, you tell them eight different ways why they shouldn't speak with the police. Six months later, you get a two-hour statement from your client. And you think, what the hell, dude? Like, the, I don't know how many different ways I could have spent 
at between two and three in the morning telling you not to speak to the police for you to speak to the police. Those are the calls I swear like, on the most. I'm like, all right, what are you? Oh, oh beep, my beep, God. Beep, <laughs> tell yeah. me, this is when you're going to, what are you going to, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be so mad. Yeah. I, I think if it's right. editing, I think what happens is just like a constant beep and then a word and then beep and then a word. Because <laughs> exactly. that's what it's like. My wife will be like, who are you talking to? <laughs> you know, it's, I, the worst are the clients, like, the guys who are in the system kind of understand. Yeah. But, you know, I had a doctor once. He calls me. He's like, oh, I just wanted to call you. The police are here. They want to come in. I was like, just tell them thank you. I have nothing to say. Call me back after. I was in court. Call me back after. And about an hour goes by, and I see a guy calling me back, and I finished in court, so I answered. I said, how did it go? Yeah, it's great. They just left. I said, what do you mean they just left? He's like, <laughs> oh. I Marco's told heart drops. <laughs> He's like, no, no, I didn't say anything. I said, you sat in silence for an hour in your kitchen? No, no, we chatted, but I didn't say anything. Uh, anything, man, anything that you say can be used against you. When I first met John Struthers, I remember walking up to him, and the first, the first thing I said was, uh, and you'll know this, Marco, because I think you represented him too. I said, is it true on the Just Desserts Lawrence Brown case that you stapled a piece of paper to him when he turned him into the police where he said, my lawyers told me to say nothing. And Struthers looks at me and he goes, yes, I did. <laughs> and I was like, it's a pleasure to meet you. And the, <laughs> no, I didn't represent him, but I did. Uh, I, I, uh, as you know, the back of my business card still says remain silent. Yeah, yeah, says, exactly. Says, since we worked together and it's never changed, yeah, but yeah, nobody yeah. really takes business cards anymore. No, it's yeah. true. <laughs> no, I think the best way to a cl- for a client to understand that now is, is just straight money. Yeah. You know, and one thing I'll say to them now, every time is the more you talk, the more it costs. All right. So if you don't figure anything else out from what I just told you, the more you talk, the more it costs. Right. You know what? That's, that's a good way to put it. Monty McGregor, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? Oh, you know what? Like, I actually don't know. I'm that guy where people are like, God said, you know that case. And I'm like, uh, I like, I honestly, I'm terrible that way. Like I, the one thing that I often do is like, is like, I can, I can, I, I forget things. Like I'm terrible with that. I'm terrible with names. So I'm terrible with case names. So for me, I'm sort of like, what's the law? You know, as I said, like I was saying before, like for me, when I speak to a judge, I'm like, I'm always like, your honor, you know the law on this, right? And then usually, usually I think 99% of the time I never have a judge go, no, educate me on this. It happens. And then you got to think about it. But for me, uh, you know, the great thing about this job is that it's always changing and, uh, and so for me, I don't, I don't have a good answer on this because I'm not a case law guy and I taught crim and I taught evidence and they're still like, you know, as I said, like I've got a, I've got this attention deficit disorder issue where if, when I, if my brain slows down enough, like if I'm reading, it'll just shut off, you know, and I don't know if it's narcolepsy or attention deficit disorder, but that's, that's my take on it, on what cases, what cases stay you know, it's a living tree, ladies and gentlemen. It's always changing. That's my view. And Liam O'Connor tell you, it's not about the law. It's about the facts anyways. That's all about the facts. All, all you had to say was Grant. <laughs> Which one? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 
That's a better answer. Uh, <laughs> Roland, you have an answer for this? Yeah, I mean, I, I just go back to sort of like some of the seminal uh, charter cases. So right. that's why for me, it'd be like Hunter and Southern, right? Because right. I think it was the beginning of a lot of charter litigation. And it was when everybody was just still trying to figure this shit out. You know, yeah. <laughs> if I could just put it that way, right? It's like, what does this mean, right? And that was the case that sort of started the idea of what does this mean? And it's one of those cases that we still rely on, right? It's a seminal case that deals with just the most important thing that, you know, the charter sort of, or at least one of the most important things, which is how do we assess this relationship with the government, right? And what is it that they can and can't do? And how do we sort of deal with that in a, in a litigation context? So, I, you know, I think that that's the case for me that's sort of, will always be sort of a timeless case just because of when it came out and sort of what it dealt with, right? That was so. before Justice Moldaver figured it all out. What did that guy Hunter do? What, what did Hunter do? And I don't Let's even see. know. <laughs> all I know is get a warrant. <laughs> okay, guys, thanks very much. That's, that was awesome. That yeah, was great. That was, you did an excellent I job, Mark. You're so that. natural at this. Man. I Brianna Van de Beek, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? Um, I would say the case I rely on most is um, Regina and Van. Um, it's a 2009 case from the Supreme Court about um, the use of the proviso. So it's good for any appeal lawyers. Um, and it basically has the proviso set out in the most defense friendly um, explanation of it. Nathan, same question. What's age the best? Well, just so in our practice, the Rogerson case out of the Supreme Court uh, has aged the best. Uh, that's a case where the Supreme Court dealt with complicated issues concerning post-offense conduct and also uh, the importance of trial judges uh, simplifying their jury instructions to the extent as possible. And so we get it into most of our factums uh, for its its guidance on uh, simplified charges. And concerning the wording on post-defense conduct, uh, Justice Maldaver from the Supreme Court gave a uh, proposed wording for inculpatory post-defense conduct that says essentially, uh, you may infer from this that the accused uh, committed the crime. And so what we do nowadays is when we have exculpatory evidence, uh, we use that same wording from Rogerson and crowns nine times out of 10 say that wording is argumentative. Uh, you can't put that in your charge. And, and we <laughs> respond, we've taken the wording precisely out of Rogerson. Uh, and so it, it, we, we get a lot of, um, a lot of mileage out of Rogerson. So it's, it's aged well from our perspective. Brianna Vandebeek, what is on your current court playlist? When you're coming to court or while you're in court or when you're in a trial, what are you listening to or an appeal, um, I guess? Usually when um, I listen to a lot of Soka. So usually when we win a case, I, there's a, I listen to Soka Kingdom by Michelle Montano. That's a, that's a good, that's a good uh, twist. Nathan, <laughs> what about yours? Uh, because I'm with Brianna, I also listen to a lot of Soka. Um, <laughs> it's good. Our, it's vacation-y, you know? And at... Well, we let, there, there's three that are often on the playlist. One, one is uh, Bust Head by um, Marshall Montana. Another one is More, 
by Bungie Garland, but one that gets played a lot is We Now Start the Party by um, Super Blue and Marshall Montana. And uh, it's if you if you listen to it, you can I see it as a metaphor for what we do. And so and it's and it's got a good it's a good pump up song. So if you're if you're in our office uh, when we make a big decision to go hard on some issue or if we're about to do a big cross examination, you might you might hear we now start the party plan. Allison Craig. Tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why. A well-known Nelson Mandela quote, what counts in life is not the mere fact that we have lived. It is what difference we have made to the lives of others that will determine the significance of the life we lead. And I truly believe that. It's why I put so many extra hours into every case I do. It's why I spend you know half of my life on the phone acting as a social worker for my clients i i truly believe that and that's why i I do criminal law brian ebert tell me a quote Uh, i'll contrast allison's serious and legitimate answer with uh with one a bit lighter whenever i'm preparing a closing for a jury trial it's the weirdest thing i get the song closing time by the you know the, the 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 once popular '90s band Semisonic, in my head, and I can't get it out. It's like an earworm that finds its way to me uh, whenever I'm putting a a jury close together. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it helps me or if it hurts me, but it's uh, it, it it definitely sort of uh, like creates those points in time in, in my life when I'm uh, when I'm coming to a jury and prepping. Allison Craig, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> I think it's falling by the wayside a little bit. I, I it probably I has, yeah, but I, a lot of the old dudes <laughs> I represent still talk about the bucket. So, it, at, at my office, I have um, a student orientation handbook, and at the end, there's a glossary of terms, and that bucket is on it, and... I keep that ongoing and I ask the students to update it every year with stuff that they learn that's not on it. And uh, not too many, they, they've told me that not too many people use bucket anymore. I need a copy of that handbook. I want to <laughs> see this. <laughs> Brian Ebert. Same question. Dump truck. Love dump truck. It's a good visual. Yeah. Right. It, it's similar to, uh, to bucket. It's, um, yeah, it, it, and it's so derogatory, right? Like when you, you when you get that call from a client who's already got another counsel, and you know that's a separate talk. You know the, the protocol for that, and, and the courtesy that you owe to your fellow members of the bar. But that's the first derog- That's the first negative term that most clients will apply <laughs> to their lawyer that yeah, they don't without like. Fail. He's yeah. just a dump truck, man. He's not even looking at the disclosure. He doesn't answer. He just wants to wheel me up to plea court and dump me out without. <laughs> it's it's terrible. It, yeah, it's a good one. I, I like dump truck. I uh, whenever I, whenever a matter resolves of mine, 
and my friends will ask me, oh, how did it go? I send them this picture of this really fancy dump truck that's, <laughs> that's on the internet with nicer rims. I was like, this is what I look like when I go into court. <laughs> A fancy, fancy dump, dump truck. truck. Yeah. <laughs> Allison Crouch. What is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? Clients who call me on Saturday. Everybody, anybody who follows me on Twitter knows this is my number one pet peeve. I am all for being available to your clients unless you're under arrest. Don't call me on Saturday. Uh, I've prepared a very helpful chart that I frequently post on social media. And well, I actually have a t-shirt now with my why you don't call your lawyer on a Saturday chart. Don't call me on a Saturday. It drives me nuts. It's always Saturday morning. Always Saturday, Saturday morning. Saturday, 11 a.m., yes. And right? the question, what's going on with my case? What's my next court date? Or what's my next court Why are you, you asking me this? You just told them on Friday. <laughs> Two other people from your office have just told them. Drives me nuts. Brian, what's your biggest pet peeve? I, 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 I'll give a more serious answer now um, compared to Allison's. I, my biggest pet peeve is the addictive nature of this job, I, I, I think rightly or wrongly, the only way that you can truly succeed as a criminal defense lawyer is if this job is addictive to you. And, and I mean that both, you know, in the positive and negative sense, it gives us a high, it gives us a tremendous, there's no other feeling like it walking out of 1911 Eglinton down that strip mall trying to find your car when you're just like on this cloud of just having gotten your guy out, just having won a trial, done such a strong cross-examination that the Crown needs to, to just pull the plug on it. I mean, that's such a high, you come back to it at a cost, right? I, I, have, I have two daughters, right? And my, my biggest challenge is the balance as it should be right i i like to do stuff i i mean one of the reasons uh alice and i are, are such good buddies we, we we also share an addiction to exercise right like I, i've got um i've got some plates that i've got to keep spinning in my life to to maintain an equilibrium and uh the the draw of criminal law the 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 quest for that high it keeps coming back and it keeps you up at all hours of the night. And I, and the, the downside of it is if you don't have that, if you're not kept up in the middle of the night, cause you're trying to, to, to sort of foresee the hypotheticals in a case. Um, I don't know if you're going to ever make it to that, that top echelon. So that's kind of my pet peeve. It hurts. Alison Craig, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? Uh, because I'm a facts girl rather than a law girl, I'm stealing Brian Ebert's answer, which is R versus Mars. Everybody loves the pizza <laughs> From 2006. Everybody loves the pizza box. <laughs> now, what am I supposed to say? I, I'm not big into the law. The honest answer is I, I, I'm a facts girl. I'm a trial lawyer. I figure out the law when I have to, uh, but just give me the facts. I, I much the same way. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the pizza box case is a good one though. Come on. I mean, so Allison's stolen my answer and, <laughs> and I took time to come up with that one. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna find another I knew one. Some, on the spot. I knew somebody would give me that. I, I, the reason I, 
I pick Mars. It's it's a decision of uh, of Justice Doherty, um, and it's a really simple proposition. I mean, the, the, the reason why it's a valuable case is, like you say, it's a fingerprint on a pizza box that was found near to the scene, proximate to the scene, and on its face that can appear to be such damning evidence. Carried by one of the suspects. Yeah. You know, and, and there there might even be other supporting evidence that, mm-hmm. that the guy was there, but, you know, it's a pizza box. It's portable, right? It, it doesn't mean that he's the guy who committed the offense. And and just, again, for for more junior listeners to know and to hear, fingerprint evidence is, is not infallible, right? You can contest that. You need to get the reports of the analyst who, who put together the— the the fingerprint match but i think for me it, it's it, it's a favorite and it's an important case because it it I, I think it helps to take outsiders and take more junior litigators in into the world of analysis that we really need to occupy to defend these cases properly to go past first blush and and first instinct about the guilt of of your client I, I might be really into fitness, but if a fingerprint on a pizza box was enough to send me to jail, I'd be in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> you know, when you read when you read Justice Doherty, <laughs> across Toronto, when you read Justice Doherty's uh, decisions that involve inference drawing, you really feel that he's explaining this is how you draw an inference world, and he's not talking to us. We're we're the down the totem pole. He's t- talking to judges who are looking, saying, "This is how you draw an inference." Yeah, it's kind of uh, astonishing to read because there's a whole string of cases where it's Justice Doherty on inference drawing, and you can look it up: Patillo and uh, USA versus uh, Huin, and all kinds of cases like that. I have a bonus question, off the cuff. Allison Craig. If you could play an intro song when you enter into a courtroom, what would it be? Oh, boy. Uh, Centerfield. By who? John Flaherty. Why is that the song? That is the song that my, my one love in life is baseball. Baseball both makes me miserable and makes me happy as hell. So that song pumps me up. All the time. Uh, I'll never forget once John Struthers, uh, I was griping about something on Twitter, as I usually do. And he sent me that song, and it, it got me back into my happy place. So play, play me that. Brian Eber, what's your intro song? It, it would need to be a long intro, because um, it takes a while for the song to build. But uh, there's a song by uh, a band called LCD Sound System called Oh Baby. Um it rocks and it's, it's, it's a slow build though. So it would need, uh, it need to be like, you know, that, that biggest like gang court at 361 to, to walk from the back to the front. <laughs> Why do you pick that song? Gets me in a groove. Um, that, that song has a, an awesome groove. Um, it, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just a great sort of electric intro. It's actually inspired by a, 
a squeaky ceiling fan in James Murphy's hotel. It, it was. It, How do you know this? I, I'm a geek, right? <laughs> I told you. Goodness. It was. It was this fan that's sort of spinning, and it was a squeak each time it went through. And it, it's. I think it's beautiful because it's like this innocuous sound that builds into something, uh, you know, powerful. Laura Lee Show. Tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why. Um, okay, so uh, I'm a big Rage Against the Machine fan. Um, specifically the song Killing in the Name of. Uh, so if I have a really big like cross-examination I need to do or I'm really pissed off at an officer... Um, about something they did. This is a song I will listen to in the car on the way to court to get myself pumped up. Um, this was a song that was inspired by the Rodney King um, situation in Los Angeles and the police brutality that occurred um, during the course of that time. Um, and I'm not going to repeat the lyrics here because they're not safe for work. Well, hold on. It's a quote. <laughs> yes. So you have to say the quote. Okay. And you can, you can bleep. We can bleep it if we have to. Okay. I especially like that part at the end where Zach DeLarocha goes on a tirade um, and repeats, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Over and over and over again. So... <laughs> That's the quote I'm going with. We'll take it. Okay. Aisha Abawaji. Tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you when thinking about criminal law and why. Uh, so my quote comes from Toni Morrison, a critically acclaimed author. Uh, and the quote is, if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. Uh, I really like that quote because it reminds me um, that, you know, I, I could, you know, live my life, just do whatever, you know, makes me happy or just, you know, be self-interested um, in a way that our capitalist society tells us that we should. Um, and I think... A community approach, um, and this is you know big in my culture, and I think in like Black culture, um, is you know being in community and with community, um, and you are as strong as the people standing beside you. And you know if there's one person who's suffering, then you know we're all suffering, um, and you know uplifting and empowering other people, especially when you have the power to do so, I think is so important. Laura Lichel, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? Reasonable doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even some judges don't understand what that word means. The general public certainly doesn't understand what that word means. So, um, yeah. And yet in, the clo in my closing addresses, <laughs> I always say his honor, her honor can explain this concept much better than I can. <laughs> Um, that's a funny answer. It wasn't really what I was going for, but we'll take it. Laura Lee Show, what is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? 
hands down the legal aid online billing portal, legal aid billing, billing deadlines, etc., etc. Why? Because it's prohibitively um, difficult. I mean, criminal lawyers are notorious for not wanting to do the administrative parts of their uh, of their practice, right? Um, and so often, you know, we we win, a, we enjoy a victory. Our client is acquitted of something, and you know, we're riding on the excitement and the adrenaline of that. And then there's just this bummer that in order to get paid for the fruits of your labor, you have to go um, through this task of, of getting your dockets in order and um, billing legal aid. And sometimes the portal's not uh, intuitive and then waiting three weeks to get paid. So that entire process is not my favorite. I look at legal aid as a very, very frugal client who is going to scrutinize the bill and not pay you when there's a mistake on that bill for that mistake. But we'll give you a chance to fix it if you take the time to fix it. But if you're not going to take the time to fix it, they're going to keep the money. So it starts to become this little bit of a game. For instance, you'll submit a bill and they'll say, well, we docked you three hours because, you know, you didn't comply with this or you didn't comply with that. And if you want to, if you want these three hours, let us know why this mistake occurred. So now you're doing this cost benefit analysis. How long is it going to take me to do this three hour fix? for three hours. It's going to take me half an hour. Is it worth my three hours? It's not worth it. Now, for me, I always do it out of spite. <laughs> I don't want to leave money on the legal aid table because I keep thinking to myself, if every lawyer left those three hours on the table, let's say there's a, you know, 800 criminal defense lawyers in Ontario and we all leave three hours on the table, that's a lot of money to legal aid to claw back to reuse. For a, and then they give us a hard time when we need money. Uh, to mount difficult defenses. So I'm a firm believer that you, if you're, if something went wrong in your billing and they, they docked you some time and you can justify the mistake and, and get that money, you spend the time to do it just because if you earned it and you're entitled to it, you should get it. But I agree with you. That is, it's a very difficult uh, concept. The other thing I hate is the audits. <laughs> I feel like the audit compliance, they make you feel like you've done something wrong. And they keep telling you, this is not, it's just random. It's just random. Mm -hmm. And I know it's just random, but I have to order a transcript. I have to order an information. I have to order all this stuff to provide to legal aid because some administrative personnel working at the courthouse did not put my name on an information or did not properly input something in a computer. That's the frustrating part. I feel like I've started something here. Keep going, Marco. Keep going. Yeah, those are the things that annoy me the most because as much as you can't take it personally, it, you do take it personally because you feel like you're being accused of 
you know, some doing something wrong. And they, and they tell you in the letter, this is not, I guess people must get upset. And I noticed one last thing. When you call the legal aid hotline, it says, we're not going to tolerate um, vulgar language and aggressiveness. <laughs> and then I look at my phone. I'm like, I'm calling the lawyer service line. <laughs> And that message is there. So I'm thinking there must be some to get really upset with legal aid persons. Oh, God. So it must be a universal pet peeve. It is. Well, because I think most of us put in way more hours on a file than we actually bill. And we know that when we accept the file, we're going to end up doing that because you have to do that to do a good job. That's and, right. Um, so when we're nickel and diming over the way something was billed and you know you've put in like 10 additional hours pro bono it's grading yeah it, it, it is it is it, it that's exactly what it is when you accept the legal aid certificate you accept that you're going to go above and beyond mm -hmm. but and so you you can't help but feel offended that you're 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 trying to claw something back in any of it laura lee show what case has aged the best in your opinion and why or alternatively, um, what cases age the worst? R versus WD, baby. If that case ever ages, we are in big trouble <laughs> as a society and as a justice system. Leo Russomano, tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why. Heels are for losers. Well, because you're a loser when you get there. <laughs> well, it just reminds me to, um, and this was uh, something Justice Norm Boxall used to say all the time um, when he was practicing. Um, just reminds you, reminds me to give it my all uh, when uh, when I'm actually in trial and to you know uh, think about you know, winning the case at the first instance. And, and yes, there's a certain, you know, element of setting things up for appeal if you see things going the wrong way, but uh, just reminds me to, to give it my all. Vanessa, do you have a quote? I don't. Leo Russomano, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? Goof. Oh, that's a that's a fan favorite over here in the garage. I mean, it has to be right. It's just, um, yeah, because it's such a strong word, you know, and uh, and and lawyers tend to use it from time to time, and I think we try to use it sparingly, and and uh, it's just a, uh, yeah, it's a word I I'm fond of. Vanessa, no answer. Sorry. <laughs> Pass. Leo Russomano. What is your biggest pet peeve in criminal law and why? Um, in my respectful submission is a pet peeve. Like words that are unnecessary, uh, I think uh, is, is a, a pet peeve of mine. I don't think there's any need to say in my respectful submission. I think you just say it. That's another boxalism. He would cut that out of every single factum we would write together, you know, so it is respectfully submitted that like, no, just cut all that out. So yeah, I don't like verbiage. I use uh, that when I'm going to subtly not be respectful. 
That, that, yes, that's its call that's for your, that. That's your tell. <laughs> that's my tell. Vanessa, <laughs> Vanessa, what's your biggest pet peeve in criminal law? I'd say, I'd say, you know, acting like issues are, are simple. Like there's like two possible answers to a question and that like, you know, most difficult issues don't lie somewhere in the gray area. As practitioners, we don't get paid to think beyond that. <laughs> I live in the gray area. Leo Russomano, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? Um, Grant, uh, I think, I think Grant has, uh, 2009. Well, I, what's that? Grant 2009. <laughs> yeah. The SCC exclusion case, I think has aged well in a sense. I feel like it's, I guess it's aged poorly and that I don't think some of its true spirit has been captured by subsequent decisions, including of the Supreme court of Canada itself. But it's one of those cases that I think has so much in there to draw from in terms of giving real life and breath to Section 24-2. Uh, and in a way, I think we've maybe failed to really harness some of the energy of that case. But I think that that case uh, is a fantastic decision from the Supreme Court. Vanessa? Okay, this is like aging maybe into the teenage years only, but um, I think the Lee case, which is obviously very recent, but um, I think, you know, there the court sort of, I know you're mostly talking about the 24-2 part of Grant, I yeah, think. Yeah, but there's a detention part. But there's the about, detention yeah. part. And I think, you know, Lee really um, doubled down on this idea that, you know, you need to look at the circumstances of of the accused, you know, the, the 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 individual, reasonable, you know, person in the circumstances of the accused, um, in assessing whether a person's detained, and and you know, Lee really, I think, pushed that forward in a significant way, and I think we're seeing the court um, be much more sensitive now and much more aware of the experience of marginalized communities when they come into contact with the police and Lee pushed that forward in a big way. And I think now that, you know, we're seeing the effects of that in ways that are, are very positive for accused persons. Five members of the court, at least. Yeah. But the most, the, that, that decision, Leo, what's the most recent, that 10 B decision. Oh, La, um, La France or Marco, we were just talking about La, this. La Chance, isn't it? La, La Chance. It's, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, I think there's more. Like that was that a. That was a five. Was it a five four decision? Yeah. What do I know? Leo Russomano, what is on your current criminal law playlist? So it changes a lot. It changes a lot. But I'm a. I, you know, I think this was one of your other uh, questions about you know, sort of your your trial. Um, prep strategies like I, I blast music uh on the way to court um and right now i have uh illmatic um recently but it's all over the place i recently had the clash uh london calling i like listening to guns of brixton a lot when i'm on my way to court um i like listening to anything from illmatic 
I like listening to Frank Ocean. I listen to a lot of different stuff, but it has to be something that gets me like jacked up. Vanessa, what's on your current criminal law playlist? It's like the exact opposite <laughs> of that. Like something that's going to help me chill the e out. <laughs> so like, like jazz, classical, <laughs> meditation, anything that makes me feel the exact opposite of how Leo just described feeling. Pamela Machado, tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why. Okay, I'm going to do two because I don't want to make it too political, but I think one is super appropriate given where we are. Uh, The first is Pierre Trudeau. I don't have a lot of love lost for our current leader, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, That being said, his father once said, the past is to be respected and acknowledged, but not worshipped. It is in our future in which we will find our real greatness. And I take that to say, respect those who have come before you and learn from them, but don't be afraid to deviate from the mistakes that they may have made and learn from them in developing new ways of doing things. So that's the first one, and I carry it with me always, and I think we would all do do well if, uh, if Pierre's son did the same and the Supreme Court in the U.S. Uh, the second is something that is forefront of my mind, not just at work, but also in life, and that's just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that's Marlous de Vries, who's a Dutch illustrator, artist, someone who's super non-legal. Um, I think just because you have the power to do something i.e. discredit someone, ruin their credibility, ruin their reputation. Even if I have that power on the, t- on the tips of my fingers, I don't think I should use it. Uh, I think things go in the vault. I never forget. But you can do things in a way that you operate with respect and dignity and still get your point across and maybe even you know provide some education in the meantime. So I carry both of those uh, quotes with me on the regular. Alex Munoz, same question. Well, my answer doesn't necessarily inspire me or, or motivate me, but I just, <laughs> I remember uh, the movie Carlito's Way, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to give a quote, and if you don't know this, and if you've never seen Carlito's Way, then who the hell are you? Uh, if somebody <laughs> mentions Benny Blanco and you don't know what they're talking about, like, come on, give me a break here. But nevertheless, I, I just, I always remember that, um, you know, the, the quote from Carlito to, uh, to his lawyer, to Dave Kleinfeld, uh, who was played by, uh, you know, Sean Penn, which is amazing. And, uh, and Carlito says to them at the end, after they had, uh, you know, uh, pulled off this thing where they, uh, where they took out some of the Italian mobsters, and he says, uh, you ain't a lawyer no more, Dave. You a gangster now. On the other side, a whole new ball game. And, 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 you know, when, when I think of criminal law, that's what I think about it. I think about it in terms of, you know, the, it can, it's incredible, the, the advocacy, and, and everybody always asks the questions, how can you defend this person or, or whatnot? But then, um, you know, you, you, gotta, you, you have to uh, remember, you have to, you're, you're, this is something where you are defending people. And you can't let it get to, uh, you know, unfortunately, some people do do bad things. A lot of people do bad things. Um, but you have to remi- remind yourself in terms of what your job is and, and who you're acting on on behalf of 
and uh, and you know not to take things personally and uh, as best as you can uh, and how difficult that is. But anyways, that's that's my uh, that's my memorable movie quote. It's interesting because it's also a reminder that um, as lawyers we should kind of always keep that arm's length relationship from our clients and their behavior. Okay, next question. Pamela Machado, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers understand and why? So I had a hard time with this one because I think my practice of criminal, you know, really uh, boots on the ground was I was so young that I wasn't really saying a whole lot. I was more listening to other people. And like, I think the example you gave as being one of your faves was he jumped my guy. And I'm still laughing about that one because I think it's just so great. Um, but I think I'm going to pull mine. It's a little bit differently. It would have been something that I use still to this day. Uh, the whole govern yourself accordingly. I really like that one. I think that's more a general <laughs> legal term versus the crim world. But it's a really professional way of saying, do what I say or else, which is kind of gangster. So, so that's I'm going to go with that one. Um, it's also super old school. <laughs> so I remember reading that and being like, Oh God, really? He's, a, he's one of those. Um, but I've used it now. So, so I'm one of those and, uh, and I like it and I'm still going to keep using it. I think. And I use it in just regular life sometimes when I'm talking yeah, to a right. waiter, <laughs> Alex, same question. <laughs> I, I don't have a saying, um, but I, I don't know why I've just always, I always love the keen apple principle. And the keen apple principle where, you know, physical, two physical acts or where a physical act related to one count uh, are identical. And so uh, basically the, the rule against multiple convictions is engaged and then a stay of proceedings would be entered. I just, uh, I guess because of the cases that I did throughout the years, the, the sexual assault cases, and especially the ones that I did where there was a... Uh, um, uh, you know, sexual assault charge, and then also the the accused was charged with sexual interference, and so you know, I just that that keen apple principle would be something that I I have like always in the back back pocket in terms of using it. Know that I would have to use it if you know the few times that my client was convicted. Well, let's let's be honest, there was a there was a few times that that uh, more than a few times, but nevertheless. Um, uh, I just, I, I just, I love that. I love the keen apple principle. I don't know why. And it also sounds like a really cool drink. So yeah, I agree. You know, like maybe <laughs> serve, maybe serve those on the next episode, Marco. He kineappled the. Uh... Yeah, little kineapple martini. Martini. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela Machado, what is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law? It has to be number one without a doubt that age before beauty, that when you get to court, you have to wait for the seasoned lawyer with a hundred plus people on his list to go through every single matter before your 2008 call is, is allowed, permitted to even speak. I'm telling you, I cannot handle this rule. I understand it. I am so respectful of why it exists. But for the love of God, it is so impractical. <laughs> because I'm sitting there with my one little teeny matter that's going to take me, you know, five minutes. 
and my clients are just getting raked through the coals waiting for me. Um, and, and I guess that's the disadvantage to choosing a younger lawyer, but that has to be my number one pet peeve. I would love to see that one modified. That, if I asked you that question in 2036, your answer would yeah, be different. Right? Exactly. <laughs> then it'll be my, my biggest love at that time, I'm sure. Alex Munoz, pet peeve? Uh, I hate to say it, it's, it's the same thing, waiting around for set court. And uh, just as Pamela said, you know, I'd have one matter. It's not like I had, you know, multiple matters. I never had that typical, like, you know, thrown into Oracle experience where you have to go to like four or five different courthouses uh, throughout the GTA and uh, speak to different matters. I, my, my uh, criminal law experience, uh, my practice was more niche. So just the, the fact that, uh, you know, I had this one matter and... Uh, I want to just get it, get it done with and then go back to the office and do the other work that I have to do and just waiting around and, and I just can't, I just couldn't handle it. I, I, I hate it every time that I, that that would happen. And that was a pet peeve. And I, I don't know how things are right now in, with zoom court. It's the same. You're uh, just waiting, but you're waiting on, on video. <laughs> it's the same. I don't know. I, I, I was going to say, I, I still, I pretty much the same, very, uh, upsetting time consuming, but. I'm glad I don't have to do that crap anymore, but I, honestly, that was, uh, I hated that. Pamela Machado, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? So, you know, uh, like a fine wine, I just, I love, love me some Stinchcomb. I know that it's only a 91 case, but I was nine at that time, so I feel like I can use it. Uh, I use it all the time, anytime. Give me everything. I'm owed everything. I use it at home. I use it at work. Um, and I'm constantly told uh, at work that, you know, well, we can't use criminal cases in, in the police act world. Uh, I don't care. I use it anyways. Um, so I'm going to have to go with, with Stinchcomb. Alex Munoz, same question. I don't have an answer for this one, Marco. No. Let's... let's uh... Podcast done. I don't have an answer. For you don't that. have an answer for, no. for the, the what's aged the best? That's fine. I mean, Stinchcomb. Stinchcomb is great. Stinchcomb, give everything to the police. No. You, you, don't, you don't have to disagree with Pamela. You can agree with her. <laughs> Stinchcomb, yes, until you get uh, wiretaps and surveillance videos and yes, you sure. just get everything and it becomes a, a nightmare of disclosure. But you're right. It'd be hard to do the job without it, so I think Stinchcomb is a good answer. I just gotta say right now, you can edit out my answer to that one. So just just <laughs> just leave that one with Pamela. Laura Metcalf, tell me a quote that reminds you, or inspires you, or motivates you, or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law, and why. I've always been a fan of the quote: "Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't uh, work hard." Um, I think that this is a difficult profession and it can be overwhelming when you see all the other brilliant colleagues that you spend time with. Um, but, uh, you know, reading Eddie Greenspan's book, The Case for the Defense, he would often talk about how he was a C student. He just worked harder than everyone else. Um, that was something similar that Michael Lacey told me early on. So it's uh, it's something that gives me comfort uh, in pursuing my goal of becoming an excellent criminal lawyer. Sheree Foda, same question. 
appeals are by definition for losers. <laughs> <laughs> I think Craig said that on this podcast. <laughs> That's where I learned it from, from Craig. I spent, we obviously spent too much time together, but um, I like it because um, whether you're doing a trial or an appeal, um, it kind of sends the right message, which is if you're doing the trial, just win the trial. Yeah. And if you're doing an appeal, well, you're already a loser. So don't be upset when you lose the appeal. <laughs> Laura Metcalf, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? So I really didn't have one, and the only thing I would be able to say is not guilty, but members of the public would understand that. <laughs> so I'm going to work on finding some sort of uh, lingo. Well, what about acquitted? Acquitted? That's, yeah. Or charges stayed? The public doesn't know that. That's a good one. Okay. I would like to revisit my answer. Stayed. <laughs> Sharif, same question. Um, I'm not sure this fits, but whenever, uh, I actually just said this to Laura today, whenever a colleague tells me that they, quote unquote, picked up a whatever case, like, oh, I picked up a murder, or I picked up a sex assault, or I picked up an attempt murder, uh, I always quickly, before they continue saying the story, I say, who's representing you? Uh, <laughs> so today Laura was telling me about how she I think picked up a sex assault and I said who's representing you no, uh, and I she said, said yeah you said I... self, I'm going self rep <laughs> <laughs> who's the father of dad jokes here somebody I am I you love should... father jokes love them so Sharif next time just say how much did it weigh <laughs> <laughs> Laura Metcalf what is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? It sounds petty, but it's overusing the word like. And uh, when people mispronounce anyway, it's any way, not any ways. And I'm looking at Sharif because we had the same moot coach in law school. So he would have also learned that distinction. I still say anyways, though. <laughs> I know you do. And it is my pet peeve, but we're still friends. Same question, Sharif. Um, my pet peeve is like, oh my God, oh my God. I just used two anyways. My pet peeve is like um, more substantive in the sense that it has to do with structurally how our um, justice system operates. And I've never liked... Um, the overly familiar relationship between prosecutors and judges in the sense that Crown's offices operate within courthouses and it's the same judges and they develop this like very close rapport. And then when defense counsel come in, it's like, oh, it's like, you know, outsider is here. And I just, you know, we're supposed to be equal participants in the, in court. And it just doesn't feel like that because of you know, I don't want to be too inflammatory here, but it feels like an incestuous relationship between in within between actors of the state. And so my biggest pet peeve is that there isn't enough um, sort of distance or independence between those two branches of government. Sharif Foda, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? Um, one of my favorites, uh, Sylvester and Dunlop and the Queen. Uh, case from I think the late 70s or early 80s uh, and it's the case that stands for the proposition that just being at the scene of a crime is insufficient to ground uh, liability passive acquiescence uh, doesn't equal aiding and abetting um, 
And um, the reason why I think that's a case that uh, I still I still use very frequently, you know, if the evidence against your client is just that they were there, that's not enough. Um, it's because I think it uh, fits with my sort of worldview of let's not criminalize too much, right? The criminal law should be sort of a last resort. So, um, yeah, Sylvester and Dunlop and McQueen. That's that's probably my favorite one. Justice Dixon, I think it was 1979. Yeah, you're, tur- you're turning into uh, Michael Lacey before our very eyes. Been hanging out with him a lot lately. <laughs> Laura, same question. It's also a Chief Justice Dixon decision. The Queen against Morgan Taller, 1988, 1 SC3, uh, 30. Um, and the reason I'm giving the citation is given what's occurred in the United States, uh, I found a lot of comfort rereading uh, Chief Justice Dixon's reasoning in this decision um, because I am confident after rereading that decision that it uh, will withstand the test of time. I, I sure hope it's not ever tested in Canada, but um, I do find value in rereading that decision because obviously in Canada at one point, um, Section 215 of the Criminal Code uh, criminalized uh, abortions for women unless uh, Section 215 in the decision sets out uh, the exceptions, but essentially you would have to show that your life was in harm. You'd have to go to a committee, probably of men, who could decide after hearing your case whether you could get one or not. and the major- writing for the majority, Chief Justice Dixon says the following when he finds that Section 7 is violated and cannot be saved by Section 1 and thereby ending uh, the state of our law at the time. At the most basic physical and emotional level, every pregnant woman is told by this section that she cannot submit to a generally safe medical procedure that might be of clear benefit to her unless she meets criteria that is entirely unrelated to her own priorities and her aspirations. Not only does the removal of decision-making power threaten women in a physical sense, the indecision of knowing whether an abortion will be granted inflicts emotional stress. Section 215 clearly interferes with a woman's bodily integrity in both a physical and emotional sense, forcing a woman by threat of criminal sanction to carry a fetus to term unless she meets certain criteria unrelated to her own priorities and aspirations, is a profound interference with a woman's body and thus a violation of security of the person. And I reread the decision, looked through the logic of it, and am confident in our Supreme Court and the state of affairs. So while it's very unfortunate what's happening in the United States, I find that rereading this decision gives me comfort. All right, I'm going to ask you those uh, postscript questions. I'll do them, Jessica, first. That was also very good. Uh, you guys had it all. They had it all like. Yeah. I had to do nothing. I was just. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually good. Um, okay. <clears throat> Jessica Greenwood, tell me a quote that reminds you, or inspires you, or motivates you, or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law, and why. Fuck them if they can't take a joke. 
(laughs) (laughs) I think uh, there needs to be a little humor in all of our uh, practices and in our lives. And I have said many times, if I didn't laugh about this shit, I would cry because you cannot make these stories up. I am literally the party favor at every dinner party I go to because I have all of these weird, bizarre stories, usually involving (laughs) sex acts that come from my practice that I can't make up. And so if I'm around people and they don't find me funny, I think there's something wrong with them. (laughs) Do you think there's a hypersensitivity um, in the world today that only... That's why part of me is... I like talking to criminal defense lawyers because I feel like it's the same way comedians like to talk to comedians. I agree with that. We have a bit of a warped sense of humor. And I like that about other criminal lawyers. We connect with each other. We see so many things that are deeply painful. We see terrible loss. But we also see moments that are just hilarious and interesting I think that there is a lot of benefit to being a member of the criminal defense bar. We're not stuffy. We've always, we always have things to talk about. Daniel, same question. The question of what quote? Yes. Oh, sorry. Uh, So the the quote that I remember is that uh, John Struthers, uh, when I started my uh, practice, I left my law firm and I was starting my own practice said to me, Daniel, 90% of your problems will be caused by 10% of your clients. And he said, figure out who they are and get rid of them. And that is the best advice ever. I, every year we, do, we, we take inventory, we figure out who are the clients that are causing us the most trouble, uh, and we get rid of them. And John, um, as the president, it's funny that you mentioned that quote, because that's a, a quote that would come from John Struthers, who was a courageous president of the Criminal Lawyers Association until very recently, uh, and Daniel's stepping into his shoes at this point. But it's a courageous quote because for a lot of young lawyers, it's take everything and do everything, and you're afraid to cut those those 10%. And you can't be afraid to cut those 10% because if they are causing, they, they're dipping into your ability to adequately represent the other 90. That's the way I see it. The other piece to that, the business development piece is... of your income will come from 10% of your clients. And so you better make sure that that 10% is well taken care of and that they are happy because the other 90%, you have them, you're working for them, but they're not paying their bills. Jessica Greenwood, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only other criminal lawyers would understand and why? Well, on this topic of humor and uh, humor being an essential part of what helps us survive is the phrase gowl humor. And I remember uh, being in the lawyer's lounge and someone saying to me, well, what case do you have today? And I was asking them, well, what case do you have today? And we were saying, well, my person, my case, my accused person only assaulted three people. They were saying, well, my client assaulted four people and so we were talking about how many victims and how many complainants and we were kind of comparing notes and it's uh, unsavory to talk about things like that it makes us sound really insensitive but part of the way that I have coped with the stress and 
I guess you could call it vicarious trauma of some of the things that we have to see and be exposed to is by laughing and talking with our colleagues about it and having humor. Daniel, same question. We say it all the time in court. We say brief indulgence whenever we need a break. (laughs) We never say just a minute. Uh, And and so this term, it's the, the type of phrase we use in court and we never say in any other context in our lives. And it's so absurd. Uh, but if you sit in a courtroom, you'll hear it a hundred times in a day. Um, I, and just something about it, it's just so silly. Well, you can, you can start using it in your everyday life and then it just <laughs> become normal. Well, I, I was thinking I could probably start a band and we can be called uh, brief indulgence or something. I'll yeah. join your band. <laughs> Jessica Greenwood, what is your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? Set date court. Why do we even have it? <laughs> it's less of a pet peeve now with Zoom, I think. Yeah, it's better now. But uh, man, I wasted a lot of years in set date court. I just, I feel like I'm glad we've realized now how to make it more efficient. But it certainly, I used to say there was no fight like an ele- like a 111 court set date fight because you would just have it out with some crown who was sitting there about what letters you sent on what dates and whether or not you got the disclosure and whether or not the adjournment you were asking for was justified and the JP would be yelling at you. It was just a real waste of our time. It was very crowded. 111, the the prisoners were brought out from under the floor, yes, which was right. very, <laughs> very odd, strange and, and scary kind of. That was the first time I ever saw uh, a prisoner in an orange uh, jumpsuit and he just appeared behind me. <laughs> I was standing like a the, magic trick. It, like it a... just all of a sudden there's a person standing behind me and I got startled um, in set decor. But it is something I mean, in other jurisdictions I heard, I haven't practiced obviously there, but they basically do the entire set date experience um, through in writing. Right back and forth to the court both parties say what they have to say disclosure we've received this we didn't receive that and it just avoids that one step but then there is still a record and the record is then updated in that writing. makes a lot of sense i think the, the 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 system's designed to be difficult and they 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 don't want for example smaller jurisdictions don't want lawyers from toronto to come so they insist on in-person appearances to the extent they can and steps that need to be taken that are so cumbersome that uh, anyone that other than local council will just back away from it. So I, I think a lot of the, the way our system's designed is very purposeful and meant to frustrate um, access to justice. But we know what Daniel's pet peeve is. My my pet peeve is is the uh, the fact that we're supposed to have this public court system, that the open court principle. Now that everything's moved to Zoom, um, I can't just go on the government websites and find all the Zoom courts. You might find one Zoom court or another, but to find a list of everything requires you to know somebody in in the in the back halls of the justice system to send it to you, and that's really frustrating. And and for as a lawyer that has access to resources, and I can eventually email the right people, and I know where I'm looking. Uh, it, it's like I can overcome it. But I don't understand how someone who is unrepresented or a member of the public who wants to participate in the justice system, who wants to watch court, who used to be able to go to the courthouse and sit in the courtroom and now can't do that, I don't understand how they can participate properly. 
And, um, and it's all, it, by my view, intentionally designed this way. Uh, they want to keep people out of court. They want to prevent, you know, uh, people from being there who shouldn't. And so that in, in their attempts to keep out those that shouldn't be there who might be disruptive, they're keeping out everyone. And I think it's a real problem. Until you provided that answer, I honestly believe that I was the only person who didn't have access to all, like a universal court list. Like I thought this was a just me because I just email my office and somebody provides me with a Zoom link and I think I just don't have access to this list and now Daniel no. tells me it's a universal problem. No, it is a big problem. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's one that I'm trying to overcome. I've had some recent discussions and and the more I learn about it, the more I realize that this is very intentionally designed this way, which is even more frustrating. Uh, and there's so many. Um, people that you need to get on board just to make it known like when when a person's next court appearance is or when a person uh where they're appearing in court or how they access court um i i i think uh what you realize is that um it, it isn't about the open court principle as much as we like to think it is jessica greenwood what case has aged the best in your opinion and why i still love wd i just use it every time all the time it's never the, changes the third prong never. <laughs> you accept none of the evidence you gotta ask yourself on the balance of the evidence you do accept if the crown's proven their case and i say they haven't and i sit down <laughs> daniel uh i i remember as a young lawyer always encountering this situation where the crown had failed to get some important witness to court and they were asking for an adjournment. And so we would always go back to uh, this old Supreme Court decision called Darville uh, of the 1956 ruling that talked about the three prongs of uh, the three criteria you look at to determine whether or not an adjournment's appropriate or not. Uh, and uh, for 65 years, it's still good law. And the, the only case you need to know for an adjournment application is uh, you know, has the crown attorney satisfy the requirements of latches. the Darvel case? Yes, I love, I love it's, latches. It's all about <laughs> latches, uh, and so um, it and it it's it, if you read a Supreme Court case today, it's three hundred pages, and this is a two page decision, so it's very refreshing. Does anybody know what a latch is in the in this context? I, I think it's just like if the crown's guilty of negligence. Um, so that's that's always what it seems to come we down to. We should look it up. Yeah, I just I just googled it quickly. It just says a metal bar with a catch and a lever used <laughs> to fasten a door or gate. That's all that comes up. <laughs> Has nothing to do with a German, with with, with uh, the witnesses. Jessica Greenwood, what is currently on your criminal law or court playlist? Mm. Kendrick Lamar <laughs> and Doja Cat. Daniel Brown. I, I'm actually looking for recommendations. What one of my um, habits, sort of getting pumped up before court, is to listen to some sort of song uh, that kind of gets me going. So if anyone knows of some good ones, uh, send me your Spotify list. DM me a good uh, suggestion. I, I need some good hype music to get me ready for some upcoming trials. You have any suggestions? Uh... I, I have one song. Okay. It's it's the one song when I'm going to a trial. I have to play it before is I you, go. Your in. intro song is like like you're a wrestler coming into a courtroom? Exactly. What's that? Audio Slave Kuchkis. <laughs> do, do you have an intro song, Daniel? I, I, I like um, uh, Bleed It Out by Linkin Park. Uh, that's one that gets me going. 
I usually go with Highway to Hell mm. when I'm walking yeah, when I'm walking good. into court. That's a good one. Naomi Lutz, tell me a quote that reminds you or inspires you or motivates you or simply helps you in the practice of criminal law and why. Um, I'm going to give you a, a quote from the late, great Eddie Greenspan. No person is required to stand alone against the awesome power of the government. Rather, every criminal defendant is guaranteed an advocate, a champion against a hostile world. I always like that Eddie Greenspan has always stood behind that idea that the government is so huge. And yeah, the the individ- awesome power of the state. Exactly, yeah. the awesome power of the state. And I feel like it gets eye rolls in our everyday practice. Um, that idea gets eye rolls, but you feel it when you're standing beside this individual in a courtroom, especially when you know the stakes are high and the verdicts are coming down or the judge is coming down uh, pre- presenting a, a ruling. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew, same question. So I chose the closing line from The Great Gatsby by... Uh, Fitzgerald, so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And um, I love it because it might be the best closing line I've read in American literature. But so much of that, to me, reminds me of the nuts and bolts of actually being a defense lawyer, is that every time you meet a new client, you're brought back to square one. And everything about that case is just pushing you and that client together back into their past. And, and you're always starting from square one with your client and you're always being pushed to the past and you're always trying to get that client back to square one. And you always feel as a defense lawyer that you are rowing against the current. And, and in our episode, we talked a lot about some of those currents that we feel right now. Um, And I think you have to, as a defense lawyer, get used to that feeling that no matter how much progress you make, no matter how many cases you win, no matter how far you feel you've come on a case, that current is always going to push you back. Naomi Lutz, what is your favorite criminal defense word or saying that only criminal lawyers would understand and why? The term hooping. Verb to hoop. (laughs) That... That's a great answer. It's one of the probably the best answers of season three, I think. Yeah, it's a great answer. Well, can you explain? Can you explain what it is? I'm, I'm, not, the- I'm not sure. I should. <laughs> I said, Google it. On Urban Dictionary, probably. Exactly, yeah, go to Urban Dictionary. <laughs> the the most tried and true method of delivering small, often soft substances into a jail. Tight security. <laughs> tight security. I like that. <laughs> Andrew, same question. Standing six. I I was gonna like try to find the the origin the origin of it. I forgot to do it before I came in, but I, I just like it. It's just one of those. Um, it's just one of those sayings that when someone says it, you know that they're in the criminal justice system because um, it, uh, it it's not a, as much of a common parlance out there. But the minute someone says it, you know exactly what what's being talked about. it's actually a, a war quote it comes from from wartime for a person watching your back they're standing behind you so what's the six the six is six o'clock they're standing oh, behind oh i you. got it okay good we're also educational here at the at the law garage 
Naomi Lutz, what's your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? It's really hard to pick one because I'm <laughs> someone who gets annoyed easily at things. Um, I think, and, and this this ties into the, the episode that Andrew and I just recorded on, which t- um, touched on appellate law, is things getting rejected for filing for no good reason. Um, and I'm sure Andrew has had this experience too. You, you file your perfect factum. Everything is absolutely perfect, but some court staff decides that it is actually deficient, and then you have to spend half a day going back and forth and convincing them why they're wrong and you're right, or you just fix it. Andrew, what's your biggest pet peeve in the practice of criminal law and why? Uh, It's all the moments where you feel that uh, you're on the side that uh, gets less funded and um, less um, system support than the other side does. Uh, And it's those, those soft moments that if you explain them to um, an individual uh, a member of the public, they would be surprised to know that such an imbalance exists, but it does. Uh, how many times have, uh, for closing submissions on a case, on a big case, uh, the Crown had the full trial transcript in front of them and you had to rely on your notes? And that's just one example that springs to mind for me. It's funny that you bring that up and both of you practicing or having practiced at firms of elite level firms and having been involved in cases, even myself with, with really with clients with resources, when the client all of a sudden has resources, you feel this level of the playing field. It's like all of a sudden to use a construction analogy, you just, you got a backhoe and you can smooth out the, the ground so much easier than if you're just using a, a shovel. Yeah. Cause I mean, even on the transcript point, you know, we, we all look over, we've, this has happened and, the crown, of course, has their police officer there taking notes for them. And you look beside yourself and there is no one there. But when the when it's properly funded, you can have someone there and you can like even in terms of people power in the courtroom, you all of a sudden you have an equal number of people when you have the resources. Whereas if it's a legally aided client, you're begging them for a budget to uh, have second counsel on it on a murder that has two crowns and a police officer there. Yeah, exactly. Naomi Lutz, what case has aged the best in your opinion and why? So I, I two examples. One is Stinchcomb, which I think is the kind of the oldie but goodie, probably Pop- obvious popular, popular answer. But I also picked one, and it's not just because I was involved in it, but that provides some context to why I was surprised it had such staying power. And that's the case of Villa Roman, which kind of revives or breathed new life into the rule in Hodge's case, which at the time Villa Roman was argued, the Crown actually argued on appeal that the rule in Hodge's case is dead. And we have moved away from that. And the law in Cooper, it doesn't really apply to mens rea offenses. And yet the Supreme Court comes, comes out in Villa Roman reinvigorates it, says with that there's no uncertainty that reasonable doubt is another way of saying that there are no competing rational inferences pointing away from guilt. And that case shows up from time and time again, um, both in appellate judgments and at trial. And it's just one of those good cases to 
to use the language of Villa Roman when you think that there is a reasonable doubt and to show your trial judge how you can articulate that reasonable doubt by pointing at those competing rational inferences. Andrew? Um, I'm going to go real old. Boucher. Mm. And it's because the idea in Boucher of the crown as a minister of justice has never gone away. And it is so important in a system like ours where crowns have so much power on so many parts of a case. They have the power to decide whether to proceed on a case or not. They have the power to decide whether to consent to a bail variation or not, to, to, to give you different like parts of the spectrum of their power. Everybody in our system knows that crowns are given that amount of power. And so it is fundamental in our system that crowns, because our system depends on them wielding that power, that they have a guiding light, that they're not only expected to be litigants uh, uh, in an adversarial system, which they have to be, but that there is that secondary role of being the minister of justice who doesn't win a case or lose a case. And I think if that ever went away, and you were just left with the crowns as strict adversaries on everything. This would be for all of our um, discussions of the things that bug us and the, the parts of the system that are difficult for defense lawyers. It would make our system be an infinitely harder grind for us. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Dow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.